Hi, this is Rose. And just a heads up on this episode, we will be talking about abortion. What did happen is that the sister of a very good friend of mine was pregnant. And her brother told me that she was nearly suicidal oh my God. and was not ready to have a child. And she wanted an abortion. I don't recall having thought about the issue before. It was a more innocent time. I was probably a more innocent person. I've never had to face the issue myself. But I wanted to help a friend in need. And so I said I'd try to do what I could. Welcome to The Women, a production of iHeartRadio and myself, your host, Rose Reed. Every episode, I sit down with one person who has journeyed to do the extraordinary. And today, I'm speaking with Heather Booth. If people want to know what would they have done in the 60s, they should look at what are they doing now. There is more activity now that's more varied, that's more intense, that's more creative, that's more interconnected than was ever true in the 60s. It is one of the most inspiring times, certainly in my lifetime, and probably in this country's history, because there is more going on. And that activity is combining across issue, across geography, across race, class, and sector. Heather Booth is an organizer, and she was organizing before Barack Obama made organizing cool. If something needs fixing, then lace up your shoes and do some organizing. Heather collaborated with Elizabeth Warren to make the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. They said to me, Elizabeth, if you really want to push for this consumer agency, you got to get organized. And I said, great, how? They said, I've got two words for you. Heather Booth. Heather's in her mid-70s, and she's a sought-after consultant for organizing. And that's because of her track record. She's worked on the Affordable Care Act, on Obama's first budget, on Social Security, championing immigration. She even spearheaded child care services in Chicago in the 70s and 80s. Heather became active in the civil rights movement when she was a student at the University of Chicago. And she joined the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, or SNCC. And in 1965, Heather started an organization called Jane. Jane provided over 11,000 abortions before abortion was legalized by the Supreme Court ruling of Roe v. Wade in 1973. I met Heather Booth last summer at a ladies' lunch hosted at a neighbor's house in Atlanta. And I can't believe I'm old enough to get invited to these things. But Nan Orak, you may remember her episode. She's the Georgia state senator and family friend. Uh, she said to me, Rose, you would like this. You, should you would really like this. You should come. Heather Booth was the guest of honor at this ladies' lunch, and she was asked to speak. So while I was stuffing my face with these little tea sandwiches and gulping down spiked sweet tea, I noticed something change in the room when Heather started talking. I listened. Everyone listened. I'm 74 years old, and I started when I was a young teenager, probably 13 or 14. So I've worked on an array of issues, and my focus is how do we engage the largest number of people on it? Because the two main sources of power in the society are money and votes. And that's a key to organizing. 
When Heather began to help women get safe abortions, she was only 20 years old. Now, in 1965, the sound of music was playing in theaters, and Beatlemania was sweeping the nation. Abortion was illegal in every state, and hundreds of women died annually from complications from unsafe abortions. And even though five decades have passed since abortion was legalized, it is still a lightning rod issue in the news and in courtrooms. And there have been over a thousand laws narrowing abortion access that have been adopted across dozens of states. And the New York Times reported last summer that there's only one clinic left in Missouri that even offers the service. Between 1965 when Heather started Jane and 1973 when Roe v. Wade was passed, The organization provided thousands of safe abortions to women in the Chicago area. And it all started with Heather and a landline. When I went to Washington, D.C. to interview Heather, I wanted to know how a 20-year-old started an underground abortion clinic. There's a a great story that uh, Radio Diaries actually did on uh, the Jane, and it starts with... um, a woman who is pregnant in Chicago who sees a sign that says, pregnant, question mark, need help, question mark, call Jane. How did that ad get out there? I started Jane in 1965. So this is over 40 years ago. <laughs> <laughs> and I may not remember all the details okay. on like how an ad was placed. Yes. Um. But what did happen is that the sister of a very good friend of mine was pregnant, and her brother told me that she was nearly suicidal and was not ready to have a child, and she wanted an abortion. I don't recall having thought about the issue before. It was a more innocent time. I was probably a more innocent person. I've never had to face the issue myself, but I wanted to help a friend in need. And so I said, I try to do what I could. So I asked several doctors that I knew, did they know anyone who could perform an abortion? And they directed me to a doctor who I learned later had a clinic on 63rd Street called Friendship Clinic. I didn't know it at the time. His name was Dr. T.R.M. Howard. He really is a hero in civil rights history. He had been active in Mississippi and left only when his name was on a Klan death list, came to Chicago, set up this clinic. I contacted him, thinking this was a one-time connection, told him I had a friend in need, and he said he would take care of it, and I put them in touch with each other and didn't really think about it again. And then, a short time later, Word must have spread. I didn't discuss it with anyone. It wasn't legal. I wasn't going to be involved with it very much. I was passing on information to a friend in need. I was doing a good deed, I thought. But when word spread, I put the next person in touch with Dr. Howard. And then word must have spread again, and someone else called. And at that point, I realized, oh, (laughs) I better set up a system because I am an organizer. I think about things and how do you create a system so it's not just one after another after another, but it's how do you change the problem and address the overall problem. So what was the first thing that you think you needed, a a phone line? 
What I first needed was to understand what was involved. So I called Dr. Howard. I asked him to explain it to me. The procedure. The procedure, what was involved, what would happen to the women, what should they do in advance, what should they do after. What should they do in advance? Well, uh, it was everything from how much would it cost? Did it matter if they ate beforehand? Did it matter if they, uh, did it matter? I, I just didn't know what mm-hmm. what would matter. And I learned about what was involved in the procedure. How long would it take? And what are the answers to these questions? Do you do you remember any of the? Well, I remember some of them. It was five hundred dollars. Wow! It was an enormous amount of money. It was much more than I would have known how to get. Uh, certainly quickly. And so I started to negotiate with Dr. Howard over the price. And I said, if someone comes and they can't afford it, um, would you give a break? And when you negotiated the price with Dr. Howard, was that was that hard for you? Was that awkward? And how did you get him to come down on the price for bulk? You know, I don't exactly remember. Um, it was a long time ago. Don't think it was that hard because I felt it was needed. They were women who, again, that's my general view. In one way, everything is hard for me. Everything. I second guess. I don't think I know. I don't think I'm smart enough. I don't think I'm good enough. I don't think I'm. And I feel look, these women need help. They don't have the money. Here's the situation. We're providing women to you all the time. You either can have a certain amount at $500. There'll be more if you say you could do it at $100, $200. We'll keep giving you leads. But for those women who can't afford it, you have to do something. And he was responsive. And as more and more women came through, he was willing to lower the price. Uh, we still would charge and, pay and make sure they handled the money directly to Dr. Howard. Um, but we negotiated on the price. We negotiated on what treatment the people received. Initially, I was counseling the women in advance and then talking with them after. How did it go? How were you treated? And if anyone said, well, you know, this was sort of rough or I didn't really like that, way that I was handled, I'd raise it to Dr. Howard, and he was very responsive. He really was a, a hero. Can you give an example of something that you maybe talked about that might have been uncomfortable, but it was something that had to be addressed in the, whether it was a change in the procedure, or like an example of what one of these women would confide in you? Um. Was there something that was, were they being informed about what was going to happen? Just as one example. Okay. So that they could be told, uh, now I'm going to do this. This will take a few minutes. This may hurt a little, but then it will be over. Um, Just so there's informed participation and the women could be actors in their own story. Yeah. What then happened is... I lost contact with Dr. Howard, and he wasn't responding. I read in a paper, I I think what happened is there was some kind of either arrest or um, raid on the offices, but I I didn't know the full story. And so I tried to find another person who could do the procedures. 
I was led to someone else and also never met that person, but met his associate. And this, I believe, was then held in in a northwest suburb. And we started to, again, go on with the same conditions that we had with Dr. Howard and same agreements. By 1968, I was expecting my first child. I was trying to get a graduate degree, and I was teaching full-time. And I was busy in other social actions. And I didn't have time to keep up with all the women who were coming through. And how many were you getting, like, you know, a dozen calls a week? Perhaps, um, but it was more than I felt I could handle. (laughs) And did you plan to start a family? Oh, I always thought that I'd have kids. I wanted kids very much. I'm so glad I have two wonderful young men uh, and five grandchildren, and they're a joy in my life. Um, At the point that I felt I couldn't handle the volume and the work anymore, I realized I need to recruit others to be involved. And so I'd go to meetings that I would normally go to. And at the end of the meeting, I'd say, if you want to be involved in abortion, come see me after this meeting. And when I was able to recruit about 10 or 12 women, I convened a meeting. And we discussed the procedures that were involved and how women could do this counseling and the terms and everything from the money to the pickup to the follow-up. And there were several follow-up meetings. We did role plays to make sure the counseling would go right. And then I left Jane. Over time, the women of Jane, and let's say they started with 12, the numbers that started coming through grew and grew as their capacity grew. And they were there to help the provider, whose name was Mike. And then several things happened around the same time. One, there were more coming through than Mike could do himself. The women were there helping out anyway, so they were kind of learning what was going on. Mike said he would teach them. Mm -hmm. And they found out that Mike wasn't a physician. How did they find that out? Do you know? Uh, Mike told them. Oh. And while you might be shocked, you might say, oh, my God. Well, you know, it's funny. In some ways, it was safer than a regular abortion you might get in a hospital because, first of all, it's the only thing that Mike was doing, so he was very good at it. For the women, it wasn't done for a profit motive because they were there to help other women. And so it was a women's-oriented, helpful profession, and they were experienced in doing it. And if you're that experienced... You didn't need a medical degree. And so the women realized they can do it too. And Mike taught them how to do the whole procedure. The women then set up what they call the front, which was a place where the women would gather before and after the procedure, sometimes with their kids, sometimes with friends or other family. And then they would go finally to another apartment where the uh, procedures would would take place. And then there'd be comfort and support and also able to be in touch. But the women of Jane performed the abortions themselves. Over time, between 1965, when I started it, 
1973 when Roe became the law by the Supreme Court, the women of Jane performed 11,000 abortions, and there were probably 100 women who were involved in Jane at one point or another. In the spring before Roe v. Wade passed, one of the Jane apartments was raided by the Chicago police, and Jane members recalled how the police kept asking them, where's the doctor, where's the doctor, where is he? They were looking for a man, the doctor, to arrest, but there was none. Seven of the Jane members were arrested, and each woman was charged with 11 counts of abortion and conspiracy to commit abortion, carrying a maximum prison sentence of over 100 years each. Because Roe v. Wade passed before the proceedings officially began, the charges were dropped, and Jane dispersed and disbanded. They thought their job was done. I'm really interested in how, you know, what's Heather's uh, psyche going through as you've gone through these moments in your life? You grew up in New York and you decided to go to Chicago. I mean, University of Chicago. Can you just walk me through that process? I grew up in a family that were good people. They were loving, caring, fun. Uh, I have memories of such a happy childhood. Sort of like the Girl Scouts, you need the campsite. Leave the campsite better than you found it. Well, we need to leave the world better than we found it. And I valued that a great deal. At the same time, I was very insecure. I didn't have confidence. I didn't think I was ever smart enough, good enough. Um, Most women, I think, probably most young people, maybe most people, think we are not good enough. We don't know enough. We're not pretty enough. We're not thin enough. We're not tall enough. We're We're not enough. So, though I didn't have confidence in myself, I did believe if you really care about making a better world, you need to take steps. And I learned as I went. When I was in high school, there was a um, a little sorority in my high school, and it was called 16, and you had a little button that said, a little silver pin that said 16. Only 16 people were allowed in it. <laughs> and at one point when there was an opening... I wanted, I recommended someone who was African-American to join. And I quit because I realized they're not just accepting people on who's the nicest people, on who you most want to be with. They were accepting people on what I felt were superficial standards. Did you agonize over the choice or was it clear for you? Did you talk to someone about your decision? My recollection is, number one, I was in agony over almost over every decision because I never had confidence on moving ahead about anything. I always was thinking, am I doing the right thing? Am I doing the wrong thing? And on the other hand, I don't recall talking to anyone about it and just deciding this isn't the right thing. Wow. So when I was applying to colleges, there were sororities and exclusive clubs on all the campuses I visited. And there was no sorority at the University of Chicago. You know, it's it's still a point of fascination to think about the 60s, uh, to think about just the common population being so moved to take to the streets and to really demonstrate um, 
in such a and with their physical bodies, like going outside and and you know I. I really want to get a better picture of the college student you were, like if you were really studious or if it was really hard to to do all your readings because you're going to marches and, you know, if you were making a lot of friends in these groups and, you know, kind of how, how you felt um, during this period. Well, two issues. First of all, if people want to know what would they have done in the 60s, they should look at what are they doing now? There is more activity now that's more varied, that's more intense, that's more creative, that's more interconnected than was ever true in the 60s in terms of the numbers involved, the scale, the direction that it's taking. Um, In part, it's building on what we did learn from the 60s, but in that time, even a modest-sized demonstration got visibility. Wow. I just think that that says so much. So what was your activity like while you were a student? What did, what did that look like for you? I uh, did social service work, and I also found organizing on civil rights, on women's rights, against the war in Vietnam, for student-initiated courses on students' rights and other social concerns. So... I loved the engagement, intellectual, social, personal, <laughs> political, in every way. You've said that, uh, I think you've, it's written that, you know, to be, to be active and to be involved and to care about one movement, um, you also care about the other. For example, civil rights, uh, women's rights, and that these fed into each other. Did you have um, a main group of friends that were active in all these different movements, or did you kind of fluidly move between these groups? You know, in the early 60s, which really began with a civil rights movement, and then there was an emerging women's movement, an emerging movement against the war in Vietnam. But overall, I viewed it as we were in the movement. Now there were tensions within it. Part of the tension that led to the development of a women's movement was how other parts of the movement reacted to women wanting to be listened to and for us to have our voice. Um, The leading organization of the movement, which we also called the New Left, breaking away from what had been old left parties in the country, uh, was Students for a Democratic Society. And I was active in that on my campus. And then when there was a sit-in on my campus against the war in Vietnam, we invited in the national secretary of Students for a Democratic Society, who was Paul Booth. Their national office was on 63rd Street in Chicago. And he came to the sit-in. It was the first sit-in in an administration building against the war in Vietnam. And he said he was looking for me. We sat next to each other. We fell in love. Three days later, he asked me to marry him. Three days later? (laughs) And five days later, I said I would, though we should wait a year. And we were married that next year and were married for over 50 years until he, he died about two years ago. And I miss him every day, but he's still in my heart. I'm sorry for your loss. What were those three days between Paul asking you to marry him and you saying yes? Well, it's very intense when you are 
at a sit-in, you've got a lot of time to fill. (laughs) (laughs) And so you're talking to the people around you, but you're talking to each other. And we so clicked. He was warm. He was funny. He was engaged. He also wanted his life to matter and make a difference in the society. We had shared values and uh, largely a shared vision of where we wanted to go. My husband had uh, was the lead organizer in the first march against the war in Vietnam in D.C. And it was front page of the New York Times and the Washington Post and most papers. There were only 25,000 people there. Now you have a demonstration in Washington, D.C. with 25,000 people. You might not even be mentioned in the local news section. It might not be covered. How do you feel like activism um, impacted your relationship with Paul? It's a special relationship when you're a movement couple. The life for any one of us is very intense. The life for both of us was very intense. We found such meaning in our relationship, in our support, and in the work. It often can take you away from home. It can take you for very long hours and very intense commitment to others. Um, So it was both a deepening of the relationship. There's no one in the world who will ever understand me like Paul did. Maybe there's no one who would ever have understood him like I do. Even for our kids, one of our kids says his first memory was sitting on my husband's shoulders, his father's shoulders, uh, in a demonstration to boycott grapes for the farm workers who were fighting for a decent wage and decent level of living. And so one of his first memories was (laughs) boycott lettuce, boycott grapes, boycott the wine that Gallo makes. And his his son now, our grandson, was walking around the house repeating that as a phrase, and we felt, oh, third generation. He passed it on. When you moved on from uh, the Jane, you had two young children. You were recently married. You were starting your life. Where what what were you think? Did you go on to get your PhD? Where were you work wise? Um, I held a number of different jobs. I worked in a uh, kind of a knowledge industry place that collected data and collected stories uh, from the papers and then would distribute them to people doing research on different subjects. And they were, I was treated wonderfully, but they were, they treated the clerical staff incredibly uh, disrespectfully. And I was involved in a union organizing effort and uh, was fired for organizing when I was trying to stand up for one of the women on the clerical staff. And after two and a half years, I won a National Labor Relations Board suit. And with that money and swearing I would never be fired again, and I never have been, um, I started this training center, Midwest Academy, to teach the skills of organizing. I ended up getting my master's from the University of Chicago. Uh, There were also conflicts around the course of study as the campus changed in those years. Uh, So I I left before... uh, getting any other degree. You're, you describe getting fired. How did that feel emotionally? Well, it was horrible. I was shocked. I was frightened. 
We did not have enough money to live on. My husband actually was out of work at that time. We had no income with two little kids. And I was quite frightened. In fact, during that period, I then tried to find other jobs. And I remember applying to clean houses. And I couldn't get a job cleaning houses because I didn't have prior experience other than cleaning my own house. Uh, And I remember just feeling hopeless. I took a job as a waitress. The way it happened is, as I said, I was being treated wonderfully. I had two little kids, and I I had flexible hours. I was an editor in an office. It was a great job for me while I was trying to get my uh, graduate degree. And... uh, But the clericals were so poorly treated, one of them had her pay cut in her check. She was a single mother. And when she asked why was her pay cut, she was told it's because the woman who used to sit next to her was going to become her supervisor. And that woman, the other woman, needed a pay raise. Well, was there a turning point for you realizing that your passion was an expertise, that your uh, labor was should be paid labor? I don't remember the exact sequences. I know women often, <laughs> we undersell ourselves in terms of what we're worth. Should we be paid? Should we just do this as a volunteer? Volunteer work is very important. I value it highly. I can be very satisfying, and it's important to make uh, operations continue. It's also true that when people are working full-time, they should be compensated. And, uh, and have benefits. And so I knew that if I was going to be doing the training center full-time, I needed to be paid. So I would love to move into our uh, lightning round. Um, these are, I, I like to say this is truth or truth, going light after <laughs> we go deep. <laughs> so um, do you have a, a favorite song or something that you like to play that makes you happy? There are many that make me happy. Some are songs by Cy Khan, who's been a, an organizer and a troubadour of the movement. Um, but sometimes late at night when I've been working too late, <laughs> I turn on some of the soundtrack of Les Miserables. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> Don't um, you fret. The songs are, uh, this is the song of angry men. We are people who will not be fooled again. But there's so many. I believe that music often helps us keep moving on. I, I love that image of you listening to Les Mis late into the night on your, from the blue screen on your computer. Do you prefer coffee or tea? <laughs> Um, starting many years ago, my house was burned down once oh. in an arson fire in our neighborhood. There was so a, an sorry. arsonist. It was not personal. Oh, my God. There were, there were 23 homes that were torched. Oh, my God. And so during that time, arsonist. I had uh, wakened up and saved the family, and it was very frightening. And I didn't sleep for many months, uh, regular sleep. So I was advised to go off caffeine. So I don't take caffeine. And even Except still, when I'm very tired, I'll take chocolate. <laughs> <laughs> Do you have any thoughts that you want to share with the audience about menopause? I was waiting for menopause. <laughs> I'm now 74 by the time this show goes on. 
And I had um, very heavy and uncomfortable periods my whole life. I was glad that I could get pregnant and got pregnant twice uh, with wonderful kids. And when we knew we had had the number of kids we were going to have, I was waiting for menopause and thinking, (laughs) I hope that it would come. Thank you. Thank you. You can follow Heather Booth at www.heatherbooththefilm.com. And check out the Radio Diaries story on the Jane Collective, featuring members who were arrested in the police raid in 1972. The Women is a production of iHeartRadio and myself, your host, Rose Reed. Holly Fry is our executive producer. This episode was mixed by Adrian Lilly. Nora Kipnis, thank you for assisting in production, for your hours of passion and dedication to the show. We wish you well. Special thanks to Nan Orak, Andrea Young, and Gail Reed. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram at The Women Pod. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. If you enjoyed this episode, share it with a friend or give us a review. It really helps other people find us.